Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at the theme, Seek and You Shall Find. Seek and You Shall Find, Matthew chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 12. And then later on in the message, we'll be reading uh, portions of verses 13 and following. But would you stand with me? For the reading of God's word, please. Matthew chapter 2, looking this morning at the visit of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. Father, we're so grateful for these wise men that show us a great deal about the attitude that we should have toward your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that much of the world this morning is turning away from you, and they are ignoring you. But Lord, I pray that we would seek and find, and that we would be changed forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen closely to a few passages of Scripture that have a great deal to say to us about seeking the Lord. The first comes out of Isaiah 55. It says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And then in Jeremiah chapter 29 it says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. For example, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it in order to suggest the real thing. Folks, let's make some connections between this passage this morning and Matthew 2. And uh, Old Testament passages for a moment. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba comes to visit David's son Solomon. 1 Kings 10 says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones and when she came to Solomon she told him all that was on her mind she concludes from this visit blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness here was a Gentile ruler a queen coming to visit Solomon, the son of David. As Dr. R.T. France says in his commentary on Matthew, we need to understand the connection here with Matthew chapter 2. The Bible says of the Messiah that he will be the son of David according to his human lineage. Well, just as a Gentile ruler came to see Solomon when he was made king, Matthew 2 tells us that these Gentile wise men, rulers in their own right, came to see the one prophesied about who is the true son of David. Folks, this is all taking place in fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 60 that says that the nations would come seeking the Lord. And what do we see here in Matthew chapter 2? Essentially in these wise men we see the nations coming to seek the Lord. We see the nations coming when some of Jesus' own people turned away and they would not seek after him. And yet here are these wise men coming to find him. 
There's a great deal taking place in Matthew 2. There's no mistake about it. Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as the true son of David and the one who is the king of kings. Now Matthew begins this in his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 showing the Jews that he is the true son of David. And Matthew continues that through chapter 2. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus Christ is the rightful king. He's Lord and he is worthy of our worship and our service. We see the kingmakers, the magi. They were oftentimes thought of as being kingmakers. We see them coming not to make Jesus king, but simply to recognize that he is already king, that God is king, has made him king, and they are bowing before him and they are offering their gifts to him. They are offering the treasures that they brought, the best that they have, and they're coming to give him those. Folks, there are a couple of contrasts that are very important to note in this chapter. On the one hand, there is Herod. Herod is the illegitimate king. And he's going to try and kill the true and the rightful king. And then there are these Gentile kingmakers. They've made this long and exhausting journey to seek this true king when Jesus' own people, even the religious leaders, seem to care less. They're not the least bit interested. These wise men have traveled from hundreds of miles, perhaps even thousands of miles to find Jesus and yet the religious leaders will not even go six miles from Jerusalem down to Judea or down to Bethlehem rather to see Jesus. They will not even go to investigate. But in pointing out these unusual and surprising contrasts, Matthew is showing the surprising reactions to the birth of Jesus. And we need to understand these reactions because these reactions still happen today. And we're being shown here that there is only one legitimate reaction that is worthy of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's look at those. First of all this morning, I want you to see with me that there is worship of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Yet that does not mean that none among the noble seek after Jesus because in the birth narratives we see the wise, we see the noble, we see the influential seeking after Jesus. Folks, that is a remarkable thing about the life of Jesus. 
In Luke's gospel, we see shepherds seeking after him. And who were the shepherds? The shepherds were nobodies. They were the lonely, uh, the lowly. They were outcasts, so to speak. Their testimony was not even accepted in courts of law. The shepherds oftentimes were considered unclean because of their lifestyle out in the fields. And so in Luke's gospel, we see the lowly coming to worship the Christ child. In Matthew's gospel, we see the noble coming to seek after Jesus. And it points out for you and me that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is for all men. He is for the poor, the rich, the black, the white, the Jew, the Gentile, the male, the female, the weak, the powerful. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the Savior of all men. Now there are a couple of things in our text that have been the subject of much speculation. First of all, there's the question of these wise men. Who are they exactly and how many of them were there? They're called the magi, literally the magi, the wise ones, the great and the powerful ones. Now the Magi first appear in history, it is believed, in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe within the Medes and the Persians in eastern Mesopotamia. Not only in, in the Persian Empire, but they were also there in the Babylonian Empire. And so they date back for centuries before this time. Now the name Magi soon came to be associated strictly with the priesthood within that tribe. They became skilled in astronomy and astrology. They were involved in various occult practices including sorcery and they were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. It is from their name Magi that we derive our words magic and magicians. Now because of their combined knowledge of science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult, their religious and political influence continued to grow until they became the most prominent and powerful group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire and also the Babylonian Empire. No Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the disciplines of the Magi and then being approved and crowned by the Magi. And so they became known as the kingmakers. Now we learn from the book of Daniel that they were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon. Because of God's blessing on Daniel's life, even though Daniel was not one of the Magi, he was placed over all of the wise men of Babylon, including the Magi. And he became greatly respected. It seems certain that the Magi learned a great deal from Daniel about the one true living God. 
Now, folks, we have no idea how many of the Magi there were that came to, uh, to Jerusalem and Bethlehem at the birth of Christ. I hate to blow your bubble when it comes to your nativity scenes at home because I know probably most of you have three wise men placed around the manger, don't you? But in reality, we don't know how many of them that there were. Where in the world do we get that there were only three of them? Well, we get that from the fact that three gifts were presented. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so we've come to believe that somehow or another there were probably only three magi. When in reality there were probably many more than that. And also they would have brought with them all of their attendants. And so there would have been this long caravan of wise men who were coming from the east. And coming into Jerusalem. Now another point of curiosity in the text is the star. Some have understood the star in very naturalistic terms. Such as it being a comet. That was the view of one of the early church fathers. Origin of Alexandria. Johannes Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, explained it as being a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces in the year 7 BC. But folks, I don't think any of those explanations are adequate. I believe what we have here with the star is a miraculous event. This is the Shekinah glory of God. You remember the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament? When God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and out into the wilderness, He led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the children of Israel oftentimes saw the Shekinah glory of God. In fact, sometimes God showed up in so much glory that the people could not even go near His presence. Well, I believe that's what this star was. It was God's glory leading these wise men, directing their path from these nations in the east into Judea, into Jerusalem, and then into Bethlehem and resting over the place where Jesus was. Certainly no normal star or, or comet or any such thing as that could have done something of that nature. But what is it that Matthew wants us to see? Matthew is interested in showing us how influential Gentiles have come to seek Jesus when his own people have turned away from him. Alexander McLaren writes, What is even more impressive about this is you would assume this story would show up in Luke's gospel because Luke writes to the Gentile and the outcast. Matthew, on the other hand, writes to the Jews, helping them to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And yet Matthew is the one here who reports Gentile leaders, these magis from the east, coming to worship Jesus. Now what do we notice about them? We notice their humility. Here they were magi in their own countries. They were important men. They were men that would have been sought out by others. They were the influential people. 
They were the leaders of the day when it came to wisdom. And yet here are these men in all of their power and all of their position and all of their wisdom. They are the ones who are coming and seeking the Christ child that they might bow down and worship him. And so we see their humility. Folks, there is a lesson in that for you and I. The Bible says to us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I wonder this Christmas season, are you and I humble enough to seek after the Lord and bend the knee before him and recognize him as King of kings and Lord of lords in our own lives? Or are we too proud? Are we trying to go about our lives and direct our own paths and do our own thing? Does humility fill your life this Christmas season? I hope so. I hope you and I will be like the Magi in the fact that regardless of what position we hold in life, we realize that all of the ground, so to speak, at the foot of the cross is level. And we all have to come to Jesus the same way we have to come bowing the knee and recognizing our need. Amen? We have to be humble and poor in spirit. And that's how these magi were. We also see their wisdom. They were wise enough to seek Jesus. Somehow or another God had made the birth of Jesus known to them. And the result is that they go in search of Jesus. Are you and I wise enough to do the same? We have a more reliable guide. We have the scripture. It is through the scripture, through the pages of the Bible that we know about his birth. There's no mystery in it. Have you found him? Folks, all you have to do to find Jesus is open up the pages of the Bible. From cover to cover, they testify of Jesus Christ. Remember what the Bible says after the resurrection of Christ when he was walking down to Emmaus with those disciples? The Bible says that Jesus Christ began with Moses and he went all through the scriptures showing them how all of the scriptures pointed to him. All you and I have to do to find Jesus is simply open the pages of scripture that bear witness of him. These magi had to come from afar, but you and I don't have to do that. It is as Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 10. He says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you shall be saved for with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed Christ is near you do you see that all you have to do is turn to him in the scripture 
Folks, I want you to notice a lesson from these wise men that they came seeking and they came worshiping and they found the one that they were seeking. There's that beautiful promise in the Bible that if we seek him and seek him with all of our hearts, he will be found by us. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who's willing to be found? Folks, I want you to think about this for a minute. The sovereign God of the universe who is transcendent. He is other than us. He does not need you. He does not need me. And yet this God who is totally complete in and of himself has chosen to be imminent. He's chosen to come near us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's revealed himself to us. That we can know God and we can be reconciled to a holy God through Him. He's able to be found. Are you seeking Him this Christmas and have you found Him? And if you have, we need to take another lesson from these magi and we need to worship Him. Folks, I've noticed in the hurried, busy season of Christmas, Christmas everybody is running around and we're trying to get this done and that done and buy this gift and that gift and we're making all of these various plans for the Christmas season and all of that is well and good but have we taken time out of life to stop and worship Jesus Christ here are these Gentiles coming from a far country Think of all of the obstacles that they had to overcome. Think of all the miles that they had to travel. And yet they were not willing to allow anything to prevent them from finding the one that had been born king of the Jews and who is the savior of the world. We let so much get in our way. We let so much hinder us from seeing what is really important in life. We get caught up in the things of the world, the things of the world around Christmas, when Christmas is a season all about the birth of the Savior, and yet we get so busy about the things in the world that we miss Jesus, who is the very one who is the reason for the season. We need to stop and we need to worship Him. And folks, worship needs to be a daily part of our lives because He is worthy of our worship. What are you doing this Christmas season in your own heart that you can open the pages of Scripture and learn more about Jesus and bow the knee before Him and yield your life to Him and worship Him? Are you following the example of these wise men? Here again, I think of these Gentiles. These were men that if you were to ask the typical Jew on the street, the typical Jew on the street would not have included Gentiles in the promises of God because the Jews believed that the Gentiles were the chaff of the world that was going to be blown away in God's judgment. They would have said there's no way a Gentile could have come to know God. And yet here are Gentiles who have the experience of finding Jesus and being included in God's plan. You know who it, they make me think of? They make me think of Cornelius and also the Ethiopian eunuch. 
in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch had been up to Jerusalem to worship. And, and, and while he was there, he had bought a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And he was going back home and he was reading in that scroll about Jesus being the suffering servant. When God sent Philip out into the desert to come alongside of his chariot. And when Philip did so, Philip said, do you understand who you're reading about? And he said, how can I understand unless somebody tells me? And the Bible says that Philip took that text and began preaching. Jesus to the eunuch and the eunuch found Jesus he came to believe and then there was Cornelius Cornelius was a God-fearing man but he was likewise a Gentile but he was seeking God and because he was seeking God God made sure that Cornelius got more light Folks, everybody in the Bible who is responsible for the amount of light they've been given and they're looking for more light, God gives them more light. And that's what God did with Cornelius. Cornelius was accountable for the amount of light that he had been given and he was seeking more light. And so God sent him a missionary. God sent none other than Simon Peter to tell Cornelius about Jesus. And Jesus came to faith. Uh, Cornelius came to faith in Jesus. Unlikely characters in the Bible who seek after the Lord and God makes himself known. What about you this Christmas season? Are you a worshiper? Are you one who will seek after the Lord and worship him? That's the lesson of these magi here. But there's not only worship of, of Christ, there's also opposition to Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod is the perfect snapshot of those who down through history remain in opposition to Jesus Christ. Now who exactly was this particular Herod? You see there are several Herods in the Bible and this is the Herod that was known as Herod the Great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father Antipater to be the governor of Judea and Antipater then managed to have his son Herod appointed the prefect of Galilee. Herod went to Rome in 40 BC and he petitioned the Roman Senate to be made king of the Jews and he was declared by Octavian and Antony to be so. And so then he went the next year and he invaded Palestine. And after several years of fighting, he drove out the Parthians and he established his kingdom. Now Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. Probably to help out his image, he married 
Miriam. Miriam was a descendant of the famous Maccabeans, the family who led the charge in the Maccabean revolt, who were larger-than-life heroes to many Jews. She was the heiress to the Jewish Hasmonean house. Now, no doubt, Herod hoped this would make him more palatable to the Jews by marrying her. And so he was a shrewd leader. He was clever. He was capable also as a warrior. But he was cruel and he was merciless. He was incredibly jealous and afraid of anybody who might be a threat to his power. His wife's brother was Aristobulus, the high priest. Herod had him drowned. And, and then he threw an incredibly magnificent funeral which he attended and he pretended uh, to weep his eyes out. He then had Miriam murdered. Now everybody said Miriam was his favorite wife. Could you imagine if you were not his favorite wife? But he had her murdered. And then he had two of his sons murdered. And then five days before his own death, he had his third son murdered. And then right before his death, he gave instructions that all of the most prominent citizens in Jerusalem would be rounded up and they would be executed. As soon as word came that Herod had died, all of these prominent citizens in Jerusalem would be executed. He did that so that there would be mourning and weeping in Jerusalem on the day that he died and so this was a wicked guy he was insanely paranoid and jealous when it came to his power he tolerated no rivals he tolerated no one who could even be thought of as being a potential rival when the wise men came and said to him where is he who has been born king of the Jews this no doubt would have enraged Herod the wise men were saying Herod we've come to worship him and by implication Herod you're not him you're not the one that we've come to worship that would have enraged Herod and filled him with hatred and jealousy but folks isn't that the way some people still are today there's this same type of hostility I realize the motives are different the motives are completely different today but yet there are still people today just like Herod who don't want to hear any news of a Savior who's been sent into the world because they think they're doing quite well on their own, thank you. And they don't want to hear of any kind of God that they have got to bow the knee to and recognize in their own lives. Because they want to be the captain of their own ship. And they don't want to humble themselves before anybody, not even Christ. John says in John 1 5 that light has come into the world and yet darkness despises the light and the darkness has tried to overcome it and there are people today who are trying to overcome that darkness and push God out of the picture and push Christ out of the picture and they want to live their lives that way and they're not simply satisfied to do that but they want to push God out of the picture for you too they don't even want you worshiping in Christ 
Folks, have they not read the end of the book? The end of the book says he wins. And every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? But there's hostility that remains. And then finally, I want you to see that there is indifference to Christ. Look again in verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." There's indifference to Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this may be the most dangerous response of all to Jesus Christ. Those who are simply indifferent. Represented by the crowd of priests here. Now, representing this crowd of priests, we know that there were the chief priests. First among them would have been the high priest. According to the Old Testament law, there was to be but one high priest at a time who served for life, and his special duty was to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifice for all the people. But by the time of Christ, the office of high priest had become subject to political favoritism and even purchase. High priests were appointed and removed at the whim of various rulers. Consequently, there were often more than one high priest living at a time. The ruling high priest also presided over the Sanhedrin, a type of combined senate and supreme court. Another of the chief priests was the captain of the temple. He was appointed by the high priest and accountable to him. He was given the power to arrest and imprison and consequently he was allowed to have a rather large contingent of soldiers, all Jewish, at his disposal and they acted as the temple police. And then you had the priest who acted as the temple treasurer. And finally among the chief priests you had those priests who were in charge of all the other priests who showed up at the temple to carry out their priestly duties and so they were kind of like priestly supervisors. So you had the high priest, you had the captain of the temple, you had the temple treasurer, the priestly supervisors all made up what was called here the chief priest. Now generally they were Sadducees as opposed to Pharisees. Now by the time of Jesus they had become little more than a group of corrupt religiously oriented politicians. He also mentions here the scribes. The scribes were primarily Pharisees. They were the authorities on the Jewish law, both laws that came from the scripture and laws that came from tradition. They were recognized as the key scholars of Judaism. Now those who were uh, Sadducees among them tended to be very liberal and even denied basic doctrines like the resurrection of the dead while others of them were very conservative and very legalistic. And these groups were always fighting among one another. Now folks, it was all of this group 
the chief priests, the scribes that Herod summons together. The Bible says here that Herod and all Jerusalem was troubled. In other words, there was gossip in the streets because these wise men, the kingmakers from the east, have come to town and they are searching for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And everybody in town knew that any time Herod was threatened, there was going to be death that followed. And so no wonder all of Jerusalem is troubled. Folks, the striking thing to me here that I want to point out to you is that here are these magi who have come from the east, Gentiles. And they've come to Jerusalem and spoken to Herod and Herod has gathered all the chief priests together and all the chief priests, they know the answers. They know where the Messiah was to be born and yet none of them even do so much as go to investigate. Does that not strike you as being odd? Here's this huge stir in town caused by this caravan of wise men coming and looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. The religious leaders know all of the right answers. They know that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They tell Herod this and the wise men this, but none of them do so much as leave their homes or leave the temple to go with the wise men down to Bethlehem to investigate. You would think of all people, the chief priest would have been interested to find out if these things were so, and yet they don't go. Indifference. They had gotten comfortable, I guess, who they were and their position in life. They didn't want to be bothered. Folks, do you realize all around us this Christmas season, there are those just like them that don't care. There are people all around us In fact, the majority of the people you and I will run into this Christmas season, they may know all about the Christmas story. They can quote to you portions of the Christmas story, but they just don't care. They are completely indifferent to what God has done in Christ. And sometimes you even find them in church. I mean, after all, here were the chief priests. They should have cared, but they didn't. Folks, think about it. This is the greatest news of all. The news of a Savior that has come to save you and me from our sin. You would think people would care about that. You would think they would care about eternity. And they would realize that there is more to this life than what we can see and touch and feel. There is more to this life than the 70 or 80 years you might have upon this earth. And yet they don't care. It makes me think of what Jesus said about the church at Laodicea. They said, we're rich and we don't need anything. And Jesus said, you don't realize that you're poor and blind and naked and you need what I have to offer. 
Folks, I wonder if I'm talking to somebody here this morning who fits into this category right here. You're indifferent. Oh, sure, you come to church every week. You're involved in Sunday school. You check the boxes off. Been there and done that. If anybody asks you if you're a Christian, sure, I'm a Christian, and you can give them all the right answers, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're truly indifferent to the gospel message. Could I be speaking to somebody like that here this morning? And some of those who are indifferent, I don't question for a moment that some of you, in the past, you've come to faith in Christ and you've been born again, but you've grown cold in your spiritual life, and you just don't care about the things of God anymore. Am I speaking to somebody like that here this morning? You're indifferent. That's how these chief priests were. And to be religious and yet indifferent, I believe, is probably the most dangerous position of all to be in in life. Because when you read the Gospels, it was the religious crowd who was indifferent who were the hardest people for Jesus to reach. What's going on in your heart this morning? What's going on in your spiritual life this Christmas season? Have you been transformed by Christ? Have you been changed? Do you love Him with all your heart? Do you seek to worship Him in all that you do? Do you offer Him your best, everything that you are and everything that you have? And are you seeking to grow closer to Him day by day and get to know Him better? After all, He's your Savior and your Lord, your wonderful Counselor and your Prince of Peace. And are you drawing near to Him or have you become indifferent? This Christmas season, does there need to be a revival in your heart and in your soul? James says, if you will draw near to God, He will draw near to you. If you will submit to Him, He will draw near to you and He will help you. And He will give you the strength that you need in life. Don't be indifferent. Some of you are indifferent because you've never been saved. But again, some of you are indifferent because you have allowed the things of this world to dim your vision of the glory of God in Christ. You've grown cold in your faith. You're like that prodigal son that has left your father and you've gone into that distant land and you desperately need to wake up to your condition and you need to come back to your father. You need to allow God to address the indifference that's in your heart. Folks, it is a dangerous thing to have a knowledge of the truth and to do nothing with it. Amen? To do nothing with it. And one of these days, you and I are going to have to stand before this one who is King of Kings and we're going to have to give an account of our lives to Him. And what are we going to say in that day? Lord, I knew all about your promises. I knew all about your provision. But I did nothing with it. I became cold and I became indifferent. I became just like the chief priest 
in the birth narrative in Matthew 2. I would not even rouse myself to go and investigate. Don't be indifferent. Folks, I heard just this week, I was listening to Dr. Michael Reeves, who is a theologian and a professor at Oxford in England. He's a noted authority on the Puritans. Now, as Dr. Reeves points out, you've got to keep in mind the context of what I'm about to say because England and Europe had been without a Bible in the language of the people for hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden they had it. And they were hungry, such hunger in their hearts. Sometimes in the sermons of the Puritans, they were known to go on for as long as seven hours. See, you don't have it so bad, do you? On one occasion in a a sermon, a leading Puritan noticed that two hours had passed since he had begun preaching. He hardly noticed the passing of time and he had just gotten so caught up in his message when he realized he had been going on for two hours, he stopped and apologized to those who were listening and they responded by saying, For God's sake, sir, go on, go on, keep preaching, please go on. Because they'd been without the scripture. And they were hungry. Could it be that familiarity with the Bible and the things of God has caused us to be more like these religious leaders here? What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds what? It breeds content. Speaking of the Puritans again, once they said in response to the risk of losing their Bibles again, they said to their enemies, they said, you can kill our children, you can burn our houses down, you can take our very lives, you can steal everything that we possess, but please, most of all, do not take away our Bibles. That's how hungry they were for the things of God. Such zeal and passion. But what about you and me today? What about you and me? Here in the the Christmas story in Matthew 2 is these Gentiles coming from the east. Men who did not yet know God and yet they were coming to find the Savior of the world that God had sent. And they would not be put off. They would not be delayed until they had found Him. Not very likely characters in the story that would have been doing that. And yet here they were doing that. And the very ones in the story that you would have expected to be going to find the Christ child didn't even seem to care. They didn't want to be bothered. Who are you and I more like this Christmas season? And I want you to notice that when they found the Christ child, what did they do? They offered their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Such fitting gifts. Gold was known as the metal of kings. Even today when tombs, ancient tombs are opened up and there's a lot of gold in an ancient tomb, what do we assume? We assume that that's the tomb of a great king and usually it is. 
Frankincense was used in offerings. It was an incense that was used in offerings. Now, it was not used in the sin offering, but it was used in offerings because it was a pleasing aroma to God. How fitting that they would offer the one who was without sin frankincense. They offered him frankincense as a pleasing aroma and a sacrifice to him. And then they offered myrrh. What a strange gift. Myrrh was a spice used in embalming the dead. Here they were at the birth of a child and they were offering a spice that was used when somebody died. But that's prophetic. Because here Jesus came to die. And this gift was symbolic of that. This Christmas season, I want to challenge you to offer Him your own gold, so to speak. And what I mean by that is offer Him the right to rule in your heart because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Give Him your gold. Give Him the best that you have and the best that you are. And say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be King of kings and Lord of lords in my heart. Give Him your frankincense, the worship of your life. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12 that your life and my life is to be like a living sacrifice to Him. Give Him your myrrh. Die to self. And say, Lord, I want to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow after you. Give him your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh and worship him. Seek him. Find him. Humble yourself before him. Do not, whatever you do, do not be indifferent. Think with me again about these responses and what Jesus said in Revelation 3 about Laodicea you're neither hot nor cold you're lukewarm I wish you were hot or cold but you're lukewarm and because you're lukewarm I'll spew you out of my mouth here are these in this story here Represented, you could say, by hot, the, the, the magi who have come to worship. They want to know God. They want their lives to be changed. Here are those like Herod, cold. Want nothing to do with it. But then here's the religious leaders. Lukewarm, indifferent. That's why I said that's the worst response of all. This Christmas season, are you religious but indifferent? Ask God to get a hold of your lukewarm heart if that fits you. Ask Him to get a hold of your indifference and bring revival to your soul. Folks, if anything we need in the church today, the church I'm not just speaking of our church, I'm speaking of the church across the land. If there's anything that we need in the church today, it is a revival in the land among those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. There's too much indifference. 
too many like the religious leaders who did not even want to be bothered. This Christmas season, will you allow yourself to be bothered? Will you do something about your indifference? Will you get on your face before God and ask Him to do that change in your heart that only the Spirit of the living God can do? That you'll never be the same again. Would you bow with me, please? Lord, we see here responses, different responses to the birth of the Savior. And we still see those different responses today. Those who outright reject, those who seek and worship, and those who are religious but just don't seem to care. God, I pray that we would not be that group. Lord, speak to that person this morning who may be indifferent, who may be lukewarm, who just doesn't bother themselves with the claims of Christ. Lord, change them. Revive them. And Lord, to the degree that that exists a little bit in all of us, change us. Change me. I pray that we would be those who seek you, who let nothing stand in the way, who overcome all obstacles. And once finding you, we worship. And we give you our best. In Jesus' name we pray.